0: This interview is sponsored by the payroll and benefit software that I highly recommend. Go check them out at gusto.com Mixergy. Let's get started. Hey there, Freedom Fighters. My name is Andrew Warner. I'm the founder of Mixergy, where I interview entrepreneurs about how they built their businesses. Joining me is a Mixergy listener who had created a video production company and I watched it grow from the beginning. And I'm really excited to hear the details of how he was able to grow it because what I'm seeing is these service businesses, which used to be, I don't know, I feel like much less desirable for other entrepreneurs to get into compared to software, are now the sexy new business. And all you're seeing are people who have audiences build up these, Uh, service-based businesses. And Justin Tan, who you're about to meet, did it before they did with a company called Video Husky. Video Husky is flat fee remote video editing services. And I'm happy to have him on here. Hey, Justin. Thanks for having me, Andrew. When did you start it?
1: So we started Video Husky in 2018. I think I first got the idea like January and then we, and then I said, all right, I'm going to give myself 90 days to get 10 customers in March. So it's like, had to get there by May.
0: All right. And we're going to get to how you got the first 10 and we'll break the whole thing down. But take me to today. How many customers do you have? How much revenue? Give me a sense of size.
1: Uh, Today we're over a million in revenue. The actual customer number, that's a great question. I'm not hundred percent sure. I think we have maybe a hundred 50 roughly customers that we work with okay. on a regular basis so yeah
0: and you're saying over a million, in yeah, a million yeah, yeah yeah a year is significant no
1: lower? no just uh maybe a couple hundred grand something like that okay. maybe 1.1 1. 1, 1.
0: 1.2 how profitable is it more than 40 percent? no
1: it's a service-based industry so at the end of the day it's still pretty standard numbers for profitability we're not looking at like crazy 40 percent numbers it's just more your standard 15 20 depending on the time of year
0: what's before we get into the story of how you did it what's the best part of running video husky
1: uh it's interesting because i don't run it anymore we have a general manager who does the day-to-day so i've been removed for about a year and a half two years and i think that's something that's been been quite big for me because for i guess i'm 29 going 30 now and i guess i started my first company like 17 So it's interesting that the best part of running the company for me was actually leaving it um, because that enabled me to minimize (laughs) entrepreneurship and business and founding stuff as a part of my identity to something smaller. It meant last year I could take a sabbatical for a year, um, got to spend more time with my girlfriend. We traveled the world for nine months, um, got a dog this year. So really the weirdest thing is being able to step out of it and being able to see what else is there to do. Because I think the thing that I didn't want to do, and I see this a lot with people in our industry and even within my family, is like the focus on business, on growth of numbers of companies. If the focus is always there, it comes at a really high cost elsewhere, whether it's just relationships and sacrifices. And that's kind of stuff that I didn't want to give up in life and that's a the most part why we want to start our own businesses, right? To be present in other things. So, mm-hmm. training, teaching myself to be that has been pretty good. Why did you decide to do this? Where did the idea come from? um It started back in 2018 when I, at the time, was running Facebook ads for kind of local businesses in Hong Kong, just doing lead gen for them. And that was when video editing, like video ads became popular, but I couldn't find a good editor myself. And I think it was around then that I also came across Design Pickle. So, Russ Perry's flat monthly fee, graphic design service, use them for a couple of ads. I was like, oh, this is a great idea. And I thought, wait a second, what if there's a way I could do this for video editing? And so that was the seeds of getting it started.
0: Okay. And you said, I'm giving myself 90 days. I either get 10 customers or I move on, but it has to prove itself in that period, right? And so how'd you get your first customer? So the first
1: customers weren't too hard because I took my existing kind of Facebook advertising agency clients maybe I had three or four of them who ended up doing this video editing thing with me on a whim. Of course, in the long run, they all turned out because they weren't the right fits, but they saw enough to get started, which is great. I remember thinking at day 83 or day 84, we had four customers. So I was like, oh, this is a bust. There's no way this is going to happen. Then in the last six days, we got six customers and that got us to 10. And all of them came from, the last six, all of them came from the Dynamite Circle. So an entrepreneur community that I'm part of and it just to this day i'm so grateful for everything the dc has given me and so that was definitely one of the initial contributing points where i was like oh i can see it now the people want this so badly that they want to pay a stranger that they don't know to try to get this done.
0: I know Dynamite Circle. The founder, Ian, is a good friend of mine and he's actually coming over to dinner later this week. I am I see the community that he's built. I'm seeing how tight they are. They're real entrepreneurs who are building and hanging out together. The thing I'm wondering with them is like, how were you able to get them to sign up to, to work with you? Was it by working boards or something? I don't actually, I don't even know if they have message boards.
1: Yeah, yeah. So there's a forum and at the time I just put that on Mark. I said, oh, I'm new to the DC. This is what I'm currently doing. This is a new project that i'm launching i just follow along as i build this thing out and so i would post update maybe every month or so and then that just because i was posting updates i wasn't like building in public since it was under a closed forum but i was building in public within that forum and it was good enough i wasn't promoting the service really i was just saying like, oh this is what's happening and then all of a sudden one relatively big youtuber said oh i'm in i'm interested in this how do i sign up and then after that got bumped up bumped the post right up back to the top of the forum. Then three or four or five other people said, oh, I'm interested too. So it, it was just like one of those things where it's like the I bus see. never comes and the bus comes, three or four of them come at once.
0: What type of video work did they do? For
1: the most part, they were talking head YouTube videos. So it was just like, but like what we're doing now to an extent, but not an interview, just themselves. and the long run, that actually ended up becoming our bread and butter. But yeah, that was the starting point.
0: Where it would be two people doing an interview who wanted it edited in some way, and they would pass it on to your team to do it. Is that right?
1: Just one person. So a talking at non-interview. So imagine if there's just only one of us here, not both of us.
0: And so what would you do with it? Would you add B-roll to it? Music? Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly. So the way that it would work is you give us the files, you give us a a quote unquote recipe for like how you want it to be edited. And then we're like the cooks. We might not be the world famous chefs, but we can assembly line this thing get it done, and then get you a draft within two days, two business days, which at the time was really fast compared to your typical, oh, we'll turn it around in
0: a week or whatever. Yeah, especially since the software was pretty intense back then. I think now you might be able to do this using Cut or a couple of other easy-to-use tools, but this was intense then, right?
1: Yeah. So, like, even up to now, we still use Premiere Pro for a lot of things, but I think, especially post-COVID, a certain number of, like, editors, whether it's VEED or Descript is still also offline, I think. But You have a lot more options. I guess like when we first started, it was still everything was on
0: Premiere Pro. And you got that 10 customers, 5,000 recurring revenue. Okay. I feel like the recurring revenue part was smart. That you now had a service business where you can count on revenue coming in month after month,
1: right? In some ways. Yeah. That's what I thought too. John Warlow, his book on product and service,
0: built to sell. Yeah.
1: Thank you. And then afterwards, his next book was automatic customer, right? He was talking about recurring revenue. And I thought it was the holy grail. And don't get me wrong. I still think it's nice. (laughs) but it's very different when it comes to services versus SaaS as to what recurring revenue actually means, I think.
0: What's the difference then? I guess with SaaS, you're built into their life and the price is low. And so it's much harder for them to churn out,
1: right? Yeah, essentially. Versus for services, if you're looking at an agency, it's, I think regardless of the agency, if you have monthly churn rates of under 10, 10%, you're like that's incredible. I think under 15 is already very is already quite good from my understanding. But you can already see if you have a 15% monthly churn rate, that means you have to replace your customers every six months. And so it's not quite as automatic yeah. as you would ideally want it to be.
0: What was the churn after that first batch of customers came in? I think in our beginning
1: months, the churn was, was horrific. It was something like 40, 50%. But that's part of the process. It's like the video editing can, it's like the difference, the differences required to edit the highlights of a football match compared to a talking head video, compared to a real estate showcase. It's just all very different, right? And so I think at that point, we were still looking for what types of customers do we really want to double down on? And we did start to find our groove, I think, towards the end of the year uh, for what we would do and most importantly, what we wouldn't do. What was it? What'd you learn? We learned that weddings, people who do any kind of wedding videography, this is like an instant no. There's no way. The turnaround times are too tight. Why? Just tight turnaround times, huge files. There's just no way to make it work for the client that we're working with. Because we mm-hmm. do need two days in order to get it right. And to have that kind of really fast turnaround service, it, it would require incredibly fast internet. It's not even fast editing. It's, you'd have to have editing at the right time zone, uh, which all of our editors are located in the Philippines. So it's not as straightforward as just bringing on another editor. You have to bring on another editor who's going to work at 3 a.m. And that would break the model. So we started to say there are certain things we won't do. But I think for us, most importantly, we, at that time, were able to find just one customer acquisition channel. And that brought in relatively similar types of customers. So whereas it was super broad to begin with, it narrowed down at least to an extent around.
0: How many people do you think you lost oh. half of the customers more? At the very beginning?
1: Yeah. We ended up keeping like three of the initial 10 for a longer period of time. Mm-hmm. And of course, over time, I think even they churned out maybe like nine to 12 months. But yeah, it was it was a big fact-finding process as to who we were best suited to and who we can deliver
0: good results for. Why didn't you say this isn't working? Clearly, I lost customers. They're telling me that this isn't good. I'm going to move on.
1: The biggest thing was even though we were losing customers, there was still interest, whether it was within the DC, whether it was my own personal network, whether it was eventually when like we we're trying other marketing things, people were interested. So that meant there was market demand, which is the hardest thing to find, especially... It was hard already back then. Today, it's much, much harder. But but it's like what Gary Halbert said right it's like if you want to sell hot dogs the most important thing is not how good your hot dog is it's how hungry customers are and so we can always figure out how to make the the right hot dog afterwards but it would only work if there was a hungry crowd and at this point at that time there was a hungry crowd for this so it was then my and our team's responsibility to build something to satisfy their needs
0: Yeah, I was going to ask if you contacted Russ Perry from Design Pickle who helped inspire the business but you did you actually you've written about this did you- you end up having with him.
1: Ross at the time had a coaching program it was a combination of an entrepreneurship slash leadership slash character building coaching program and I had no idea what I was signing up for I just saw he had a coaching program I was like this guy built the business that I want to build what's the worst that could happen right so I did a 90-day coaching program with him at the time I think he shut it down already but it was called expand and it was like to mm-hmm. build a better business better body better it, it was like all-encompassing men's coaching program and it was a lot more intense than i originally thought and i think that's because Russ himself is an intense guy he holds himself to very high standards holds everybody else around to high standards and he's very very focused on being the everything being optimized and it was interesting because i just have a very different personality to Russ. and i remember thinking at the time like my one biggest memory was he was like look justin my biggest fear for you is one day you're going to build this to a million dollar business and then you're going to spend your 20s floating or floating around in life like most like a lot of other remote founders and i just don't think that's a good life i remember thinking that and i was like oh, i think that's a pretty good life and like to be fair <laughs> like credit for credit's do for fast forward four years that's exactly what happened um yeah, he nailed it. I, I don't think I have the same intensity that he has in terms of always wanting to grow and push harder with businesses, but I'm also okay with that.
0: What are some of the intense things that he asked on the non-work side?
1: At the end of the 90 days, there was like a weekend retreat. So me and five other business found, like founders went to this two-day summer camp, and there, it was interesting. We did everything from waking up at like track of dawn to go do a boot camp, like a literal physical boot camp where we were carrying logs. Uh, Russ's partner, like his coaching partner, was literally carrying a log by himself. So it was like literally physical boot camp. We had to journal. We had to share our experiences. We had to get like a super fit vulnerable, I guess. And it's already been many years now. So I don't remember the exact details. I remember I was like this is like one of the weirdest things I've ever done in my life.
0: Was any of that helpful?
1: Hard to say. I'll say the video husky grew a lot after that. So whether that just so happened to be the case or whether that's just a matter of timing, I don't know. Uh, maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. But I'll say that it was an experience experience. Uh, I was just going to say the one thing that comes with coaching consulting, and like I do this on a part-time basis now, as a coach or consultant, you want to be able to provide answers or make things better for your clients or whatever, right? And that's what the premise of most coaching programs. So it's like, Come work with me. I'll show you the secrets and whatnot. But at the end of the day, it's, this goes back to what's the bottleneck like of your business. And if the bottleneck, like, and 99% of the time the bottleneck like is market demand, there's no coaching service in the world that's going to solve that, I think. And for example, as far as like how this coaching program went, did it make me a better person? Yeah, I think so. Ironically, the one thing I really did take away from it in the long run was drinking green smoothies in the morning. It's like, literally we have... Um, yeah. You have it right there. So I like, I get my vegetables. So great. Like the, I think as far as businesses go, you really have to find the right market demand first and you can feel it. You can see people really knocking on your door to make it work and no coaching service or no coach is going to be able to solve that for you. Which I've tried on, on the other end. being a coach, It just doesn't happen like
0: that. I was going to say that I got property here in Austin and I literally last week was moving logs because I decided that I would build a path using some of the fallen trees and branches that we had here in the big uh, Uh, storm last year, I freaking enjoyed it. The discipline of having to move things and finish a project, the, the, satisfaction of seeing something get moved. So much of what we do is online. It's just pixels on a screen. To actually see something in the physical world get moved feels good. Sweating, pushing, all that to me is really significant. I would love to do that with other people. I would love to be Amish only in the sense that I would want to build a house with an Amish community together. And at the end of the day, see a house built up that wasn't there. I feel like we should all get together as friends and learn how to build ADUs and do like a weekend ADU project where you get together with 20 of your friends you're all building the adu and you all have this sense of action to your friend's house there's something in that work together that we don't get to do i think do you know what i mean
1: yeah and and also i I come from hong kong like big asian city so it was like this reserve that russ brought us to it was like picturesque it was like there's like a forest it's not like tame But it's also not like pure wilderness or whatever, right? And so it was just the first time that I saw something like it was a big stretch and it was like green and I could see the sky. There's a creek, a natural one. This is one of the most beautiful areas I've ever seen. I still don't know where it is. We were blindfolded as we were driven there. So I don't know where it is. I remember thinking like at the end of the day, you do have a feeling of satisfaction. And I think you do lack that building stuff online. And like we, my girlfriend and I recently moved to New Zealand. And I know 99% of people here are grew up in a Western world, but as we now have a front lawn. I think that's the first time in my life I had a front lawn and we have the mow grass. I know mowing grass sounds so boring, but there is something to be said. Oh, you just go out there. It takes a couple of hours, yeah. but it's a very calm feeling to get it done and that you feel good because you see the results and you're outside. Yeah. And yeah, small things like that go a long way.
0: Yeah, it feels really satisfying. All right. So we talked now about the non-work stuff that you got out of being there. What did he teach you about how to run a service business? He's run... He, and he continues to run Design Pickle what did he teach you about how to run uh, video? Husky? So
1: he, he actually didn't teach me all that much uh, in terms of that the one thing that because he was like look the first 90 days is for becoming a better person and the next 90 days which of course you have to sign up for the next 90 days is to become a better business person and I was like okay I'm, I'm not dropping another 18 grand on this or, or 36 or whatever it was a lot of money and I was like I'm good but I'll say the one thing that Russ did teach or did show me was like the intensity required to uh, always be a leader within your business and i can say this is fast forwarding a bit but three years into running video husky i burnt out this is just i think a lot of founders go through this and like we have i don't know 40 50 people at video husky so it's like a lot of people especially during a town hall that are looking to you to make sure that you're showing them who- where the next direction is. And at the end of the day, I think there are some people who love that, some people who like myself just don't as much as I could force myself to play that role. But over time, like there is a certain dissonance. And so as much as the business required me to be very, let's say a leader, it's also not my natural Form, my natural state of being. And it's like one of those things where it's if you want to be the leader of a huge team, you have to have a certain kind of personality. And if you don't have that personality, then you have to reconfigure yourself to that. And that has certain costs outside. And I think after trying to be that for the longest time, like, I, I just burnt out. And I remember just thinking at the, the three-year mark for Video Husky, I was like, I'm just not like Russ, And so maybe that's why I'm not cut out to run this forever.
0: Okay. But at this stage, you were going through this program. You were... <laughs> $18,000 to work out with this person and to become a better person. Meanwhile, your business was uh, was finding its identity. You knew it wasn't going to be wedding videographers. And I understand why. A lot of video, a lot of need for... Actually, they don't even need it fast. It's just for you to hit your two-day timeline. It just wouldn't work out for them. Realize the people who are doing talking head videos for YouTube, those are a good niche. What else did you realize? Want to get the next batch of growth?
1: It was really finding that one... Uh, customer traction channel which ironically given what I previously did uh, should have tried much earlier was Facebook ads. So I only tried Facebook ads for Video husky like six, seven months in and that for us was like the it enabled us to 10x the business over the next 10 months and so that that was really the kind of lever that made it work.
0: Is the thing that got you how many new customers and what kind of a what kind of recurring revenue?
1: It got us all the way to over 100 I think at over the course of a year. That was like the one traction channel and yeah it just went gangbusters at the time
0: what was it about the ads? What worked for you with the Facebook um, ads? That's the thing.
1: It's not really about the ads, right? It's just about at that time, uh, a service. Like there was a need and there was limited service options. We could come up with any ad really at that point. And we just said flat monthly fee video editing. People just, oh, I've never seen this before. I'm interested. Versus we run the same ads today. It's There's a lot of similar businesses. There's a lot of remote video editors. The competition is just much fiercer. I mean, and really what worked about the ads was we did it at that time when there was mass interest and not much competition.
0: You know what? I'm noticing now that they are becoming more and more specialized. There's one that just shows a GoPro in their ad and says, you come back with a bunch of videos on this and you never edit it, we'll edit it for you. And I thought, that's a very specific group of people, but I get it. There have been times in my life when I've been in the action camera uh, place in my life. And yeah, there's a bunch of video of me going and running in Mongolia and I just never edited it. Actually, I did, but it was it felt like it took forever to get it edited. So back then when you were going to 100 customers coming Coming in from Facebook, this was the period of September 2018 to September 2019. It actually got you to 200 customers. Customers, what type of work were you getting from them?
1: So at this point, besides wedding videos, we were still working quite broadly. We were doing all kinds from YouTube to real estate to working with agencies to uh, to help them do their client work. We did a, quite a broad range. But I was also a very naive business person at that point, And I just said, the more, the better. Let's just figure it out as we bring in more customers. And let's just get, grow as fast as we can without really thinking through the delivery part of things.
0: Everything. How much were you charging for it?
1: We were charging 500 a month. Uh, at that point with relatively little limits.
0: So unlimited number of videos, two day turnaround, 500 a month. That essentially means a max of 15 a month. Yeah,
1: we were like if we said unlimited submissions, but you can only get one video done at a time. So I think the max that one person managed to get done was like 12 videos because we still don't work weekends and whatnot. Uh, But yeah, that was roughly how it played out.
0: That's a pretty good price. That's a great price, especially for the person who got 12 over to you. But even if you get five videos in, 100 bucks a video, knowing you get good turnaround from somebody who's been working with you for a while, it's a decent price. You can get it cheaper if you go find someone in the Philippines on your own. But barring that, the service made sense. It was a really low price, right? And so
1: that was was the value prop, essentially. It was like, you don't need to go out and find your own editor and you don't need to hire locally. We'll take care of all the HR stuff. Just sign up and you get your first video edited in two days.
0: How did you find the first video editors, the ones who, before we get into staffing up, the first one or three people? The first one was actually
1: uh, my friend's boyfriend, who he had just moved to Philippines. He was looking for work. And I just said, hey, I have a three-month pilot project. You interested in giving this a shot? And he said, yes. What I didn't know was he was working off of a eight-year-old laptop with a bootleg Premiere pro get that up that part out <laughs> afterwards so we sorted that in the long run but yeah he was the first editor and the second and third we hired off of upwork and okay. from there actually the second editor we hired his name is paul he ended up becoming our head of recruitment and over time it became his responsibility to help us bring on new qualified editors
0: I want to take a minute at this point to thank my sponsor, Gusto. If you are paying people, you want to have a good experience paying them, meaning software that you could understand and use even if you had to scramble to get it done quickly and that was good for your people so they understood what their benefits were, what they were getting paid, and they had a good experience using it. And frankly, at this time of year, you're starting to think about taxes and how to organize it all. And what you want is software that makes that easy too for you and your team. That's why I recommend Gusto. I love them. I highly recommend them. I'm not telling you to take my word for it. I'm going to tell you if you're listening to me to go try it for free at this special URL. Gusto.com slash Mixergy. G-U-S-T-O ocom slash M-I-X-E-R-G-Y. I remember talking to Russ a few years ago, and he was starting to create software to manage this kind of agency work because people were sending clients through uh, Basecamp, which is good, but it doesn't scale to the numbers that you're talking about. It doesn't focus on video and and audio uh, feedback and so on, creating his software. But I do know this has been an issue for people who are taking on client work. What did you use to organize it?
1: So he did. It was called Jar. Just a request. It was just a ticketing service, essentially, or software. We tried it, and it was interesting, but it didn't really work for us because we needed some form of video feedback tool. So we settled on Rike W-R-I-K-E. Because they have yeah. video proofing. So that was great. So it was like frame.io is industry standard. It's not quite as sophisticated as that, but one level lower. Right? had better project management tools. But yeah, you're right. It is a need. And I know like Robin Vander Hayden, he started many requests. Chris started uh, SPP.io, which is software service provider, but I
0: know a good number of people who use both of those platforms and they're quite happy with it. Are there any issues in coordinating all this and making sure that each customer's recipe was kept together with their video work and all that? So after
1: we found Reich, no, it was, uh, they, they had a pretty good tagging system. So we could go into each individual client's workspace. And even on our back end, when we brought on more editors and sorted them into pods, it was quite good in that we could see all of the tasks and we could see the entire flow through a Kanban chart, which worked great for the editors and for the because they could see how things moved one by one and all the completed projects that we had done for them. So I think it was one of those things where uh, visually it was quite helpful.
0: Meanwhile, so that every customer gets their own Kanban board and where their projects are and you get to see all of them together and got it and each customer has their own recipe attached to it. Exactly. How'd you staff up beyond?
1: After the first couple of hires, it became abundantly clear to me that I didn't actually know how to hire video editors because I don't know how to edit videos and so vet their skill. So that was where, yeah, Paul became our head of recruitment. He ended up sourcing our editors from job boards, from Facebook, from Upwork, from Fiverr, um, and as he tapped, and even going to like, schools locally and talking to graduating classes of creatives. Some of them who, of course, focus on video editing and just saying like, "This is what we do. This is what we offer." It's a remote position, which for a lot of people in Philippines is ideal because they don't have to then do a two and a half hour commute daily one way to Manila Um, the capital city and so that was actually where we started recruiting and he came up with a test for how to grade editors and over time he even developed a boot camp to ensure let's say we bring on 10 recruits they have to go through this boot camp of those 10 we know we can bring on five after we bring on five and we pay them for the boot camp is like bring you on one at a time as needed by our own internal logistics schedule and capacity schedule
0: do so you don't hire them full-time you hire them as you need them
1: oh no we hire them full-time as we need them so like, let's say we grow the company, we'll bring on another uh, editor. Or let's say we lose an editor, then we can bring on two, something like that.
0: What's this thing that happened around the holidays where people kind of revolted? Yeah. So
1: one of the more painful things in my video hockey journey and maybe like the beginning of the burnout period was being like an online service as international. It's like, I don't really know what days are holidays. And so I was so scared. And I thought, oh, you know what? Because I don't know whether to follow American or Filipino holidays, we're just gonna do neither, yeah. And we're just gonna work through the entire thing. And that was a stu- colossal mistake. And I was so scared because I didn't want our customers to think that we were skimping out on them, not delivering for them. And so the way that it worked, it played out was we only had like very specific, like a Christmas was a holiday, and then then we had one other day. But as the company kind of grew into year two. What our editors did was they started banking up their own private leave, and they all want and like something like sixty percent of people wanted to go on leave in Christmas. The problem was we couldn't afford sixty people to go on leave at the same time. There was sixty percent, and so I just said no leave um, for everybody. Sorry, and so wow. that was a, we can't deliver, and so everybody was very unhappy about that.
0: In retrospect, I get needing to give people vacations. And one of the things I need to remember to always do is if I start working with someone from another country, I need to find the calendar of that country, calendar of holidays, and add it to my Google calendar so that I'm aware of their holidays. But how could you have handled the holidays better? Would you go back and tell, do you now go back to tell your customers we don't work over Christmas because you can't get editors Yeah, so
1: if I were to go back and do this all again, is figure out what's acceptable and what is standard and be able to listen. Not only from like a customer side, but also editor side. In my head, I thought, oh, I personally like holidays whenever. I don't like to follow public holidays because that's when flights are expensive, et cetera. So I'll provide our editors with floating holidays, same number of days, but you can use them whenever. Uh, Turns out on their side, they wanted public holidays because that was when their friends, their family were all free at the same time. And so it was more a matter of, uh, in my head, what do people value? I can't just go and push my own values onto everybody else, whether it's our clients or our staff. It's important to go and listen and understand and then find the best solution, which is a little bit slower, a little bit like more emotional work, but a way better outcome. And that was a big lesson I had to learn.
0: And so you now give people public holidays and I'm assuming your customers are okay with that, right?
1: Yeah, because why wouldn't they be? Uh, This is something that I built up in my head for so long and
0: you know where I, I imagine is I have seen people like Casey Neistat over the holidays share something that shows what they're doing over Christmas and publishing it on Christmas Day when you're at home anyway. And there's some value to that, but I'm guessing your customers didn't have that.
1: Yeah, most of them didn't. And most of them didn't mind it. I think it's like one thing if you are a Casey Neistat and you want to go and dominate punker the world or whatever, but the reality is the majority of our customers are just your bread and butter, small businesses, small business owners, right? they work, but at the same time, they also want their time off. And so when we did that announcement to tell all of our customers, hey, we're taking a December break from like kind of Christmas to New Year, actually, the majority of them were happy. They were like, oh, we're really thrilled that your editor at the editing team gets a our editor gets a break uh, and We look forward to working in yeah. the future. It was an eye opening moment for me. I was like, oh, <laughs> I realize I'm not always right. In fact, I'm wrong a lot of the time.
0: From what I understand, people were all angry at you about this. Meanwhile, you had to handle this in real time. Did you make that decision that first year or did the first year everyone get pissed off at you?
1: The first year was fine. The first year, because we only had a small team, we didn't have that many customers. And it just so happened that that small team all didn't really mind the whole floating holidays policy that we originally had. They were more okay. similar to me. So it was like, okay, no big deal. Uh, it was only we got when we got to the point of like 40 editors that it was like, oh, actually, wait a second. The majority of people did want to have those fixed holidays. And so, yeah, we just did it. We did two town halls. I issued a massive apology. I went into every kind of like individual pod to listen to what kind of the editors had to say. And then from there, I came out with the new policy. I remember sending the email out and I was like, okay. I sent it out on a Friday, I closed my laptop. I'm not looking at this till Monday because I don't want to see the responses. It was all mostly positive. And the couple of people who weren't happy about it, we just gave them an extension. And so it was like, we won't charge you for it at that time.
0: Now through return, you've picked all these different customers. You've said yes to everyone. You grew a team to handle them. And at some point you realized, I can't work with everyone. How did you figure out who the right person was and what happened when you lost the wrong customers?
1: So the big moment, I think, happened around COVID just because it was a big thing for everybody, right? We lost what, 30, 40% of our customers overnight. And we were only borderline profitable because I was focusing all in on growth. And I realized, well, this is not sustainable. So what we did at that time was we, I read The Pumpkin Plan by Mike McCallowitz, who he's the author of Profit First. This is another other less famous book, but I think even more important. And the idea is fewer mm-hmm. customers, bigger profits, better business. And his whole thing is just 20% of your customers would drive 80% of your revenue. Focus on those guys. And I thought that didn't apply to us because we're a flat monthly fee. Every customer pays the same amount. What's the difference? Turns out, if you look at it on a, mo- like, on a month basis, it doesn't matter. But if you look at it over the course of the entire like three years that we were in existence at that point, 20% of our customers brought in 72% of our revenue. And worse than that, mm. I think the bottom 40% of customers or bottom 60% of customers were actually unprofitable because they only worked with us for like two or three months. And that wasn't enough to uh, recoup the investment of marketing, of bringing on staff members. And so the realization of, oh, if we just worked with our top 20% of customers for this entire time, we'd have four times as much profit, even if it was a lower top line number. That was like an eye-opening moment for me.
0: How would you figure out who they were, what they had in common? so we did this huge study
1: internally of like we listed out every single customer and at that point it was including churn customers it was like a list of a few hundred and so we went through their projects we went through their content and we said okay this like ideal kind of client does talking head videos you know 20 minutes in length maximum amount of footage is like 30 gigabytes and they require this kind of editor and so anything outside of that parameter we now no longer do so we found out in particular agency clients for example where they had their we were like essentially white labeled not a good fit we'll stop working with them and we really want to focus with people who view us as partners and so that was going through that study of looking at the dollar amount they contributed to us over that three-year period as well as the kind of work that we delivered for them that was how we figured out who our best clients were
0: is it people who are content creators who are trying to teach something How would you describe what all these people have in common?
1: Nowadays, I would describe these people as small business or content creators who want a partner in terms of a video editor. They don't want necessarily somebody to just delegate work to. And they're not necessarily a huge business. They are either an individual or a small team. And they want somebody who will take care to work through the small details of
0: their projects. So it looks like there's someone here who has an art studio, I guess, and she's teaching art, that kind of a person. Am, Am I right about that?
1: Yeah. yeah. So really, it's like small business owners, content creators. It's not okay. your venture-backed businesses. It's not a corporate. It's like a small, like no more than, let's say, 10-person team, and they just want additional help.
0: Okay. And it's not creators who are like Ali Abdal trying to become the next YouTube careerist making millions from that. They have a business. They want videos that show who they are and what they're selling and how they're building. Am I right?
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because somebody, let's say Ali Abdaal, the game he's playing, he wants to be like a multi eight figure creator type of entrepreneur. You will bring in your own in-house editor. And that makes sense. You absolutely should. But if creating videos is not your core competency the way that it is for somebody like Ali Abdal, There's no point investing all that time, energy, resources into finding an editor. It's better to like bookkeeping, give it to somebody who is a professional, and then focus on what is your core competency, which in many people's cases is their business. Video just so happens to be one aspect of their marketing.
0: And now as I'm going through this while we're talking, I see a whole lot of B-roll. So you're doing B-roll. You're not just editing people's explanation of what they're up to. This is pretty intense editing now.
1: That's the thing. It's like depending on what you need. Now we have multiple packages where it's like if you need more B roll, if you want more transitions, is that we have a package more dedicated towards that. But yeah, it starts to add up Mm -hmm. because a key thing that we wanted to get Video husky to was to be a video editing partner, not just a somebody you just send work off to.
0: Meaning someone who could suggest go shoot a video of this next time have this other angle, that kind of a thing.
1: Exactly. Yeah. Where there was more of a value add for lack of a better term. And it was like, oh, like you get the feeling of the person on the other end actually cares about the
0: work that is being delivered for them. So what do you charge for this? I'm sorry. I'm lost in watching these freaking videos. I don't know why I didn't see it before the video started, before our interview started. But the videos on the bottom are really compelling. I didn't realize you did this type of work. What do you charge for someone who say, has a car dealership and wants to do videos about cars and shoot some B-roll and maybe have some uh, videos of his customers coming in. What does that cost?
1: Nowadays we have four packages and the majority of these actually our current general manager came up with. And so the smallest package is starts at five fifty, but those are mostly for YouTube shorts, TikTok reels, and whatnot. The standard package is seven fifty. Mm-hmm. We have a we call it a Siberian package, which is for higher level creators, which is around. Uh, 1500 a month, if I'm right. And they it's like, if you need more uh-huh. higher end editors, we can make sure that's done properly. And then we have a more custom package, which is like for your highest level. And our, our GM, he comes from a like marketing agency, a larger marketing agency background who has experience building out this kind of a um, package. So he wanted to implement it. So it was like, great. If you know how to do it, then go for it.
0: All right. Earlier you said, one of the best things about this business is that I don't have to run it all the time. You got somebody who is running it. How did you find that person?
1: I found that person through Dynamite Recruiting. I think today it's known as Remote First Recruiting, which is a business launched by the Dynamite Circle guys. And they're a recruiting service. So they actually helped me find our GM fed. And what were you looking for in a GM? At that point, I was so burned out. I was looking for somebody who could bring the energy and take the lead. And I wanted somebody who was significantly more experienced than me. I think at the time I was 27 and the majority of our team was younger than me. It was a lot, I think a lot of burden on my side to try to always know what to do because I didn't know what to do versus somebody like Fed. He has a, a lot more experience, a lot more, just like I think time does matter. Where it's like you've gone through multiple business cycles of recessions of like growth periods and you can see those waves. And so I wanted somebody who had experience working remotely, running agencies, and most importantly, working with creators. And so In Fed's case, his previous company was, they helped set up influencer campaigns for e-com businesses. And I was like, oh, you know what? This is not like a video editing company, but he works with the exact, like very similar types of customers that we do. So he understands the space and he also understands what it takes to deliver work for them. And so when we did the interview, it made sense to me. I liked him. He liked what we did. And so that was how it played
0: out. What was it like when you finally got to take space? Were you able to do it? Oh, this is an interesting one because
1: everybody talks about, oh, if you want to be a good like manager or whatever, right? You create SOPs and you make sure that the onboarding process is really like top notch so that your staff member can walk in day one and start adding value. And I did a lot of that stuff and it works, but I think it only works for lower to mid-level staff because the whole point of bringing in senior level staff is you want them to bring a fresh perspective. You want them to bring fresh ideas and their experience and giving them my perspective just meant that it would end up being like a second rate version of what I could bring. But what I wanted was something else. And so if I could go back and redo it, the way I did it at the time was, oh, we do weekly meetings and then eventually bi-monthly like meetings to give me updates. So twice a month. And it just didn't work because it, the, that frequency was too tight in terms of being able to give Fed the space to implement some of his own ideas.
0: So, but then if you just, I guess what I'm trying to understand is the transition and how you would do it right, there is, I get what you're saying. Look, don't give SOPs to leadership who's supposed to come and replace you and, and then take it to the next stage based on their experience. But you also don't want to just send them in there and say, take over, I'm burned out. You keep going, right? You want them to somehow be up to speed on what you're doing and then give them space to to go and do it their way.
1: Yeah, so I think the middle ground is to make sure that they are the one to take initiative. And you should ideally figure this out in the job search interview, right? Do they have that kind of personality and you talk to the referrals? But to give them the initiative to go and do all this stuff, because if they don't even have that initiative, they're never going to be able to drive certain things forward. But on the flip side, be available to them when they have questions, when they're not sure over certain things. And that way you are a resource to them as opposed to the other way around, which for a general manager level position, I think is a better way of approaching things.
0: Right, what's next for you? Now that this business is working, you get some space, you get time with your girlfriend, you get to enjoy New Zealand? I'm not sure. It's been like a year and a half, two years.
1: A sabbatical year was great. And now it's like one of those things that makes you realize as I try to launch other things, whether it's a little bit of coaching, consulting or other kinds of businesses, like timing matters, market demand matters. And it is, at least at this point, my personal experience, harder now to find something that works then say one video husky start point was there so i think now it's just a combination of continuing doing some coaching and consulting for businesses founders of businesses who are similar to video husky as well as exploring other things i would love to develop a SaaS at some point but i think that's still a little bit away from me right now so uh, we'll see if i can come up with the right idea uh, or find something that has the right demand i'll go for it
0: Would you do this kind of service business for another issue, another topic, another product?
1: I don't think I would. I know the the typical way that you play this game it was like once you build your first business you build a very similar business and you speed run through it which if you are very much a business person very much an entrepreneur I totally understand go for it or you like sell your business and go buy three more with leverage uh, neither path appeals to me because uh, I think what's the most fun for me is finding those underserved under like untapped markets and like building something new I think like, at that point Video Husky was something new and that was the most interesting part to build something that previously hadn't really quite been seen. I, and like, it's much, much harder now because there's just that many more people, especially post COVID, that are in the online space. But it has to at least be something new, even if it's not necessarily market demand new. That's why maybe a SaaS is more appealing to me at this point, where it's like I've never developed something like that, then I would want to try it versus if I've already done something like Video Husky to find something else and do it all over again. It, it just is. It's less it's less exciting, I think. And I would rather work on something that is yeah. exciting, even if the chance of failure is much, much higher.
0: Yeah, I hear you. I think in the past I would have said, you'd be crazy not to just duplicate this, do it again in a different area. You know what you need to do. You have your systems, you have your software. But now I'm understanding that changing things up makes me feel more alive now. I didn't always in the past, I wanted to just keep improving on the model that worked. But now I want to go and try something brand new and see if I can master that. Uh, Yeah, I have a guitar behind me. I suck at the guitar. It's so different from everything else that I do. You have to move your fingers and sing and play at the same time. And all that is just completely foreign to me. But it's interesting because it's so foreign. Have you found something like that? Something that's uh, like a personal interest that's so different that you get excited about it uh
1: so for me it was playing um competitive age of empires um which is like a real-time strategy game and i played a lot during covid still play a bit now but um while i can safely say i won't go pro i did end up getting to the top 20 percent of players in the world which is not great but it's not bad either and it was fun to go through the journey of trying to improve find the minor points and so i do think one of the things that like if you and I'm very privileged in this that like can create space in your life to explore other things, I think it is worth doing that. It's like I know with like my family, for example, they run a family business and my dad, God bless him, he's like sixty one. He's still travelling, I don't know, three, four times a month to various countries to run his business and he loves it, but it's just not me. And so I don't think I have that level of intensity, as I mentioned before. And so I'd much rather have the space to try other things rather than just make my life business and family. I think that's, I'd much rather be able to say, oh, at the end of the day, I've tried a lot of different things and a lot of it was fun.
0: I'm glad to have you on here. Um, The website for anyone who wants to check it out is videohusky.com. Thanks. Bye everyone.